Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One podcast. We just survived an unbelievably awesome weekend of college basketball with the kickoff of the NCAA tournament. We're sitting here between that opening weekend and the Sweet 16. And in order to really digest everything that happened from a, a college basketball and an NBA draft standpoint, we wanted to have a long discussion here on the podcast this week with our good friend Maxwell Bomback just going over a lot of what we saw on that first weekend of the tournament. Maxwell, my good friend, mm-hmm. it's great to have you back, back on the podcast here. How have you been? I've been great. I've been great. I'm glad to be back uh, with you here. I've been loving the work you've been doing all season, loving the Game Theory podcast you and Sam do. Uh, every week, it's it's a much listen for me. So uh, yeah, doing doing great. Really excited. There's been a lot of excitement in the tournament. Uh, some guys that I think kind of did the whole Dennis Green, you know, he what they they were who we thought they were kind of performances. We've had some surprise performances in a positive way and in a negative way. So a lot of ground to cover, but this is such a fun time of year that I can't can't do it without a smile on my face. Oh, no doubt about it. And we're gonna have a lot of great things to talk about. But as many of you know, as we start off our podcast here, we're going with a little bit of a pregame speech. And today's speech and topic here is something that I noticed from watching particularly that opening round of the tournament of flexible systems versus inflexible systems that a lot of these college coaches nowadays aren't adapting with the times. And one of the things that I've noticed about basketball over the last decade is that it values and really rewards versatility more than any time that we've had in our past. And by versatility, I don't just mean players who can do multiple things. I mean, coaches who can have rosters that can play multiple different styles. And as far as I see it in the college game, there are really two different types of coaches. Those who really adapt their roster to their opponents, those who change what they're running or what their points of emphasis are going to be every year based upon their best players. And then there are those who have a clear-cut identity, a style, and they try to develop and win that way every single time, every single year. And... I think we've seen both be successful in the past, but we might be trending in a direction now where flexible systems are the ones that allow you to win games in March. That's really hard based on how many teams shoot the ball well from three, spread you out and play five out schemes, how many bigger guys are skilled nowadays. It's really hard to just say, this is the one way that we beat teams and we're going to bank on that carrying us all the way through to a championship. We saw that with Tony Bennett and Matt Painter, two coaches who have come over a lot of fire for some early round exits over the last couple of years, both of them losing in the first round this year. Tony Bennett's Virginia losing to Furman, Matt Painter and Purdue getting beaten by Fairleigh Dickinson. But the teams that they lost to are incredibly versatile from a lineup perspective. Furman being able to go four out or even five out with Jalen Slauson as the linchpin of their roster. Fairleigh Dickinson playing incredibly small but up-tempo and selling out and everything that they did defensively. Those teams took Virginia and Purdue out of their identities because they just have one, and those coaches and programs really failed to adjust. So if I am a basketball fan or a basketball coach at one of these places moving forward, I am always looking for flexibility and versatility. It's a great lesson not just for the NBA draft and NBA roster building, but now for college programs as well. So with that said, Maxwell, it was an unbelievable start to the tournament, but what are some of your initial thoughts and the first things that you want to make sure we mention off the top? Yeah, so I think the big thing has been getting to see this Arkansas Razorbacks team be what they are. Uh, because obviously the way that the bracket fell, that was like the the game in the first round that had the most prospects in it was going to be Arkansas versus Illinois. Um, So we got that game and then we get them in the next round against Kansas, uh, another big prospect game. And they win both of them. And this has been an Arkansas team that for a multitude of reasons has kind of been up and down throughout this season. And it seems like they are peaking at the right time, but there's still loads of questions about the individual prospects on their team. So it is just like a fascinating situation. And also one of those situations where, is an evaluator where from that perspective, we're getting pretty lucky just to get more bites at the apple, seeing this team over and over again, especially against high level competition, like you're seeing in the tournament. So to me, Arkansas is the story so far. 
The thing about Arkansas, which I, I'm glad you said that we're lucky as evaluators to keep getting more chances to see them. Like I think Nick Smith and Anthony Black, the two guys from this team who get most frequently mentioned as lottery talents, they're also lucky that they get more cracks at it to be able to prove and win scouts and evaluators over mm-hmm. that they can be worthy of those types of lottery or even top 10 selections. The challenge for me, particularly on the offensive side of the floor, is I don't know, even if we get more games to see Arkansas, if they have the floor spacing, the type of modern system that that can really put these guys in a position to succeed. And I think Mm -hmm. that the Kansas game was great proof of that, that this is going to be an Arkansas team that has to win ugly. And they have been great on the defensive end. They're athletic, they're long, they really get into people, and we'll talk about that in a second. But man, do they struggle to create easy looks for themselves in the half court because they just don't have enough floor spacing. And it's hard to trust an offensive evaluation of Anthony Black, who's not a very good shooter, not a very good self-creator off the bounce. He's a great pass first guy who's a six foot eight point guard. And I love all of the intangibles that he brings to the table, but he's driving on top of bodies every single time he puts the ball mm-hmm. on the floor are we getting a clean look at him even if we see Arkansas continue to advance in the tournament? No, probably not. And that's, that's been like the weird thing was ever since Trevon Brazil, uh, Trevon Brazil went down and Brazil was a guy who I don't really think I was quite as high on as some people were that like got really into him with a draftable grade uh, pretty early in the season. Cause he is big. He can shoot, he can protect the rim. Uh, he can, he's athletic. He can guard a few positions. Um, but with, even with him, like, he he misses a lot of easy reads as a passer. Um, and I just had a lot of questions about him as a player. But as soon as he went down, it really kind of clouded our ability to really read any of these guys because of how poor the spacing is. So for guys like Anthony Black, yeah, to your point, I don't know that we're going to be able to do it. Like, I just don't know that we're going to be able to get a clean read on these guys because when the offense is, you know, Debo Davis taking 18, you know, mid-range jump shots, like we're just not going to get that type of look. Um, But I do think there are still things they can prove. And like, it was great to see Ricky council just like willingly shooting threes again. Yeah. The other day, like little things like that, where it's like, yeah, he was one for six, but just the fact that he's taking six threes is like, please keep doing it just so that they can get a little bit of room to breathe. Yeah. And and I think council deserves a shout out for his playmaking as well. Like he, he has been much more of a put my head down and drive kind of guy throughout the season. There's been a couple of good passes, but more than anything, he wants to score. And I've been frustrated by some of the elementary reads that he misses when he operates out of the pick and roll or when he draws two defenders. Uh, I thought he was much better, particularly on Saturday against Kansas. That was one thing that allowed them to create and score in the half court is once council would create separation from his man, he made the right decision and the right play. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys get to like, he's a winner like tag. And I feel like Ricky council is a guy who's really deserving of that and hasn't gotten it um, this season. And I understand it. Like there are definitely some frustrating elements to his game Um, off the ball can be a bit of a gambler can kind of wax and wane in terms of attentiveness. Um, But I do think he's made a pretty substantial leap as a passer. Cause I think like from his freshman season, it was like, all right, this guy like gets blocks and steals and he can shoot and whatever. And the shot is, is 100% still a question mark with him. Uh, but he, like he's a sophomore at Wichita State, he, so, he showed a lot more in terms of like his self-creation and, and using his dribble and his handle to get places that he wanted to be on the court. And just the vision that he's shown finding others this year as opposed to last year, like there are still massive problems with it. Like yeah, he does, yeah. to your point, still miss a lot of the easy ones. But I think he's come a long way. And I think that's really encouraging. And you just watch the way that these guys feed off of him from an energy perspective. Um, the fact that like, he's the guy who wants the ball when he knows the other team is going to foul at the end of the game and things like that. Like I, I feel like Ricky council has been kind of a quiet riser for me. He's a guy I've been really skeptical of all year. Yeah. Um, but the guy who's like a good free throw shooter and can shoot off the dribble, even if like the off the catch mechanics are really wonky and he's shooting across his body and things like that. It's like, I wonder if that's just like a workable thing. Like if everything else is there physically from an athleticism and body standpoint, he's an NBA guy. Um, It's just going to be a matter of like, can he catch and shoot? And it seems so much more workable given what he can do as a pull-up shooter. 
Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, he's, I, I've like really kind of find, find myself buying into him a little bit more uh, through this recent run. So the big riser to me from the weekend for Arkansas was Jordan Walsh. Um, Completely understandable. And, yeah. Yeah. And look, like, I still have a lot of doubts about Walsh's offensive aptitude and his ability to make a solid impact on that end of the floor. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not ready to do so from day one in the NBA, but he is a winner on the defensive end of the floor. The way that he competes, his understanding of rotations, his ability to just lock in and be that selfless piece who wants to guard the other team's best player and be a major disruptor. I know there's a quote floating around on the internet after he talked about guarding Jalen Wilson and taking pride in winning that matchup, not caring what his offensive impact was because he could take the other team's best scorer out of it. That's the mentality. That's the role for him at the next level. The worry for me is how does he create or or make a positive impact on the offensive end of the floor? And is, are the defensive tools enough to get him in this draft class or are scouts going to want to say, you should go back to Arkansas, work on your jump shot, work on some of those ways to be an impactful offensive player there. And then we end up taking you in the top 20 next year as a really valuable role player. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's an interesting question. I'm always very skeptical about kind of primarily defensive rookies that don't have like a ready-made offensive tool um, in the NBA, just because it, it can get really dicey. Like if you're coming into the league and you don't have a way to contribute on the offensive end out of the gate, um, it's just, it's just murky because rookies historically, the, the two places they struggle are on the defensive end in offensive efficiency. So if you're coming in and you're just like an okay defender by NBA standards, but you're far below average offensively, like it's, it's hard to get you on the court. And then if you're not there by year two, is a team signing up for more of that? Like it, it's just a tricky path to a second contract, if that's what we're working with. Um, but I'm going to kind of pose a question to you with Jordan Walsh, uh, right. one that's that's not on this, the, this, the sheet or anything that you're really prepared <laughs> to talk about here. Um, but what do you think the gap is between him and somebody like Julian Phillips? Oh, I thought of this Where, question. Okay, because I, a... feel, I feel like they're both pretty good feel guys on the offensive end. Phillips is a little bit bouncier. Um, but I do think Walsh is a more willing shooter out of the two. I'm still not sure that he's the better shooter out of the two, but I think where he has a big advantage is that he's bigger, not from a height standpoint, but just from a body standpoint, where I think if you were to tell me one of them can play defensively in the NBA next year, I think Walsh has a better shot just from a frame standpoint, where with Phillips, it's going to be more dependent on guarding down. And then if he's guarding down, you know, is he playing a wing position on offense and does that get murky um that i I just wonder if that's like a closer a closer thing than we've given it credit for throughout the year so this was definitely not on our preparation sheet that we were going through here but i actually had this conversation in my head in the shower this morning i love that like this was exactly Mm -hmm. what i was thinking about so your timing could not be better there i see two things with julian phillips that kind of lead me in that direction um, Mm -hmm. right now one is I do see more versatility to guard down the lineup I understand that there are offensive questions that might come with that but I think that he is a true like two through four maybe even one through four in the right matchups kind of defender where Walsh is much better just against really high scoring high volume wings still really valuable but I think there's a little more versatility that comes with Phillips Mm -hmm. I also buy the mechanics of the jump shot a little bit more I know that Walsh has been more willing to shoot them this year, but I think that there's more fluidity and stuff to work with for a guy like Phillips than there is with Walsh. And, and that's that's kind of where I've been at dating back to high school. I know Phillips mm-hmm. has come a little bit longer of a way over the last year at Tennessee than Walsh has, and that upward trajectory kind of has me on board there. I think Walsh is a smarter team defender. I think Phillips is more versatile on ball. And I tend to, to believe that Phillips has a better shot of being a good shooter in the NBA. But I, I'll be honest, this is a positional archetype that I really struggle with. Yeah. It's one that I'm kind of scared of taking a gamble on if I don't see a really high offensive ceiling that comes I'm with, with you. it. Yeah. Like, I like both players. I love the intangibles that they bring forward. I just don't know if it's the right type of risk that I would be willing to take. Yeah, and I think it's tricky to from just an offensive decision-making perspective where I feel like they're both 
pretty intelligent players, but it kind of manifests itself in different ways where like Phillips, I really trust just like a quick move the ball, skip past guy, like some of the high low stuff he does, stuff for the nail, stuff at the elbow. Um, is a passer that he does in Tennessee's offense feels really good. But when he puts the ball on the ground, I don't love his yeah. handle. He gets bumped off his spots all the time. Um, there was a play in a game. It was one of the SEC tournament games where like he just attacked a closeout going in the wrong direction, like attacked the wrong foot, went toward the middle of the floor, kind of got bounced back, went to the baseline and just threw up a terrible layup. And it's one of those things where it's like, man, like physically you're going to have a hard time in the NBA with Walsh, I do feel like he's better putting it on the floor, but he goes back to the basket so much and like he does dribble the ball quite a bit. It's like, okay, well, you're probably not going to do that in the NBA either. So yeah, that's that's just one I've been kind of hung up on and, and thinking about lately. Yeah. But I, uh, I'm with you. I do kind of lean Phillips just because I do think I do think the frame is a bigger deal with him than the consensus thinks as far as him guarding forwards out of the gate. Like he is real, real thin. Mm-hmm. Um so that kind of scares me, but I, I do like his shot more than Walsh's. And I think the fact that he's snappier helps him a little bit too. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with scheme that they're playing into like Tennessee's mm-hmm. motion offense. It, it it does demand that you move the ball a little bit more and ask guys to be quick decision makers. Whereas I think there are quite a few ball stops in uh, the Arkansas system as yes. we're seeing it right now. The, the last Razorback I want to talk about here though, Maxwell is, is Nick Smith. Mm-hmm. What is going on with this guy? Because he has been all over draft board throughout the season. He's in and out of the lineup due to knee injuries. Like, I don't know what to see, what to trust the end of the day, I always try to default to the fact that he's got incredible touch. He has proven through the AAU system that he can be a really good three-point shooter and floor spacer. But this has not looked pretty for him at Arkansas. Does he need a really big tournament here and, and Sweet 16 performance to be able to get back on track? Yeah, I think so. I feel like he's he's a, he's a tricky evaluation. Um I really liked what he could do as a shot maker, like looking at the high school film. And I still think I like his passing more than a lot of people do in terms of just like how he finds guys out of a live dribble and things like that. And it's, it's the same discussion with Anthony black, right? Where like you could the assist numbers versus the turnover numbers. And it's like, Oh, that doesn't look so good. But then you watch who he's passing to. And it's like, well, you know, what what can you do? Um, But I think it's just really hard that like, he's been historically inefficient and that is really hard to grapple with when he can't get to his spots at the college level. So we're talking about a guy who's really thin, who's battled injuries and has a hard time getting to the rim. So it ends up being really floater heavy. Uh, He's in the 99th percentile on like shots taken that are floaters on synergy. Like he lives on the floater more than just about anybody in terms of like what percentage of his shots are coming there. I think the jumper is better than he's shown. Like I, I fully believe in him as an outside shooter. It's just a matter of like, what else is he doing offensively? Um, My big red flag with him is just, is there going to be a way for him to score efficiently? Um, I keep this database of, players in the NBA it goes back to I think 2016 or 2015 of players who either earned a second contract in the NBA or are on pace to earn a second contract um here are a list of those guards that had a less efficient effective field goal percentage than Nick Smith that either earned a second contract or are on pace to earn one okay all right that was the entire list (laughs) so there's there's nobody that's done yeah. it. That's really scary. Like that yeah. is a giant, giant red flag. Um, and again, he, he was injured. He was airdropped right into the heart of SEC play after his injury. Um, but then again, it's like, well, he's skinny. He's got injury problems like that. That's a little daunting too. So um, where are you at with the, the Nick Smith experience at this point? I need to do a deep dive and watch again. I am Mm -hmm. waiting for that time when the season ends, when I can look at the numbers holistically, see if Mm -hmm. he has a better performance here to bounce back. And then I'm going to do a lot of high school and college watching to see how much of it is speed and pace and and might be excused by the knee and then try to get a feel for where he belongs there. But let me, let me ask you this, Maxwell, Mm -hmm. Nick Smith or Keontae George. I I, Keontae, but like not by much like Keontae, using that same database is ahead of like four or five guys. And yeah. that's it. Like it's, and some of them are interesting. Like, uh, like Fred Van Vliet, I think is like the big name that a lot of people were comparing him to at points throughout the year. And he is one of those guys that's in a similar range. And then there's guys like Tyrese Maxey, right. Who is another guy, again, very different players in terms of 
archetype speed is worlds yep. apart where yep. uh maxi is more of a catch and go burst guy but both guys who had great reputations as shooters going into college and it's like didn't quite shoot to that same point probably for different reasons i think shot selection probably plays a bigger role for keontae george yeah. than it did for for tyrese maxi yeah. um but just from a frame and physicality standpoint i'm a little more comfortable um with keontae george um but yeah, he he definitely scares me. I'm not as big on Keontae as, yeah. as some of the the diehard believers. Those two guys are going to be really tough to slot in less the rest of the lottery, and I think that ends up having a huge impact on the value or the comparison of this draft class to prior years. Because if both mm-hmm. those two guys end up being really good pros and good scorers, you can find some some real offensive depth in this class. I think that if they're not, and if there are some real red flags about them. This is going to be a, a class that struggles to have a lot of high value scorers, not not players. I think we can find mm-hmm. some good players in there. High value scorers at the end of the day here uh, to close the book on Arkansas. They've got an incredibly tough matchup with Connecticut coming in this next round here. I absolutely love the way that the Huskies are playing nowadays. Uh, Jordan Hawkins, Andre Jackson, Donovan Klingon, Adama Sonogo has been great. Like this is a team that's on fire. I'm really looking forward to see if they can counter what Eric Musselman and, and their defensive game plan that the Razorback staff have put forward lately. That uh, They're known for disrupting teams that are great on the offensive end of the floor. UConn might be one of the best. This Anthony Black guarding Jordan Hawkins matchup is going to be really important for both of them. It's yeah. going to be fun to watch. I love kind of this idea of Jordan Walsh and Andre Jackson, two kind of non-shooters, but good athletes that have evolved their game. You know, Jackson has evolved his game and can be a model for somebody that Walsh can look at up to over the next couple of years. There are a lot of really fun subplots in this UConn game. I'm going to get your pick on that at the end. We're going to do some, some quick picks here as we move forward and try to project the rest of the field here. But I do want to move on to make sure we're talking about the other teams in that bracket that uh, one of them will go on to face in the Elite Eight. It's UCLA Gonzaga. I mean, what a treat for us to be able to get this in the Sweet 16. This is a championship caliber type of game with Gonzaga, who's rolling on offense, and a bunch of kind of fringy first-round prospects for the UCLA Bruins. We're going to see Julian Strother, Adam Bona, Jaime Jaquez. A a late-season resurgence from Amari Bailey has been great. But I want to just ask you right off the top, who do you think is the best prospect in this game long-term? Yeah, that's when I go back and forth on quite a bit. I think my gut says a Dembona, which is kind of a boring answer, I think, in some ways. Um, I just think he's one of those guys that's going to hit a ceiling, no matter what it is. I think there are better paths for Amari Bailey, certainly. I think he's probably the guy that I think has a higher ceiling. You could make the argument for Jaime Jaquez if everything scales well. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Um, I just think Bono with his length and athleticism and how hard he plays um, and just some of the technique stuff that we've seen from him defensively, yeah. like switching down and things like that. It's gotten a lot better just throughout the year. Uh, and it was, it was one of those things where in the preseason when Mick Cronin was talking about him and it's like, Oh, Mick Cronin loves this guy. And he's a freshman big who's raw like that. That's pretty surprising that on paper is not a Mick Cronin guy, <laughs> yeah. um, but just, it just shows how hard he plays and how hard he works and how he gets after it. Um, I mean, his post game, you know, dating back to high school is kind of a disaster. He does not have great footwork, hasn't shown a ton as a passer, but man, can he defend man? Can he rerun rim run? He is physically imposing, gets up great catch radius for lobs can do the really simple stuff. Well, and can offer you some scheme versatility defensively. Um, I feel really good about a Dembona. I do too. And it has really clicked for me over the last few weeks where I I moved him into having a first round grade right at the end of February, early part of Mm -hmm. March, like just the way that he's come around on the defensive end of the floor and the reliability of his motor, his effort just never, never goes away. He does not have bad games on that end of the floor. And the real value that comes from that is going to rub off on teams through an 82 game season. Like the comparison point that I have, maybe this is a little lazy because they both went to UCLA is kind of like a Kavon Looney type. Yeah. Yeah. Where like he knows what his role is. He's going to show up and he's going to do it 82 games a season. He's fine. If he plays 15 to 20 minutes a night and he's not going to be a problem by any means about that. He doesn't need a ton of touches on the offensive end of the floor. 
maybe not quite as high IQ of a player as Looney in terms of how he moves and, and does things off the ball. Uh, but if you're the Golden State Warriors or, or any team for that matter, and you could draft a guy like that in the 20s who sticks around and has a Kevon Looney type of role, I think you do it. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm a lot higher on Bona. Uh, I know there are a lot of people out there who, who really like Julian Strother just as another dependable role player and somebody who spaces the floor really effectively at the NBA level. I'm not quite sold on the defense from Strother. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if UCLA is the type of team that is going to be able to exploit him. Like maybe it's, it's not, are there places that they can hide Strother other than Jaime Hawkins to make sure that he's, uh, he's not going to be just kind of cooked at one-on-one every single possession. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just wish it felt like Strother had bigger games against better competition. Like he had, the, he had the giant yes. game against Pepperdine, um, which is like a marquee matchup but not like a marquee game. Yeah, worst team, <laughs> that, worst team in the sense. WCC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's just been a frustrating thing for me because I, I think on one hand, there is some real just like scoring dependability. He is a fantastic outside shooter and he really knows how to cut. And I mm-hmm. think that's something that's been a little bit lost this year. It's just like Gonzaga's a bit worse from a spacing perspective than they were a year ago, a bit worse from a passing perspective than they were a year ago. So the fact that like, he's a guy who cuts really well has been diminished and he's had to do a bit more on the ball. Um, so I think he's a guy who really knows how to shoot and he really knows how to play without the ball on offense. Um, I just don't love his skills with the ball. And I think defensively he leaves a lot to be desired. There's been games this season that I've seen where it's like, all right, I, there's a little bit more to him there, but um, really tells with himself on his feet a lot like really really gives guys a ton of space when he guards on the perimeter and it's just one of those things where it's like i all right are you going to be able to cover ground well enough are you going to be able to get away with this when you're facing better shooters on a consistent basis when you're facing better athletes on a consistent basis i just i'm not sold if i if i if i believed he could be okay on the defensive end he'd be a firm first round guy for me and i i'm just not i'm not there yeah, I think more than anybody in this particular matchup, Strother needs to have a good game. He needs yes, to be able to yeah. shoot the ball well, and he needs to be able to defend a little bit. It's important for for him to secure that first-round grade that Gonzaga keeps winning, keeps moving on, and he can have positive performances against really good athletes. Like If, if they win this game and they get one of Arkansas or UConn, like, man, is he going to be moving his feet a lot. And, and that's going to be a really revealing game for scouts. So uh, to me, the jury is still out on Strother because I just want to see what he's able to do over the next couple of games here as, as Gonzaga might have them. Uh, that's not to say that his entire evaluation hinges upon them, but when you play in the WCC and you face different levels of competition on a nightly basis, certainly the microscope gets a little bit more uh, you know, tuned in to these mm-hmm. high-profile matchups, if you will. So let's go to the two top teams now that we're kind of on the subject of, of, of prospects here. And it just so happens that Alabama and Houston, the only number one seeds remaining, have two guys that tend to be valued as potential top five picks. Uh, I've seen Jairus Walker from Houston really start to rise in that uh, conversation over the last month or so of the season. Just a really dependable role player and defender. And then Brandon Miller from Alabama, the guy that we've been talking about since January as probably the best prospect in college basketball. I believe he's cemented himself as that over the last few weeks. Like where are you at with either of these two teams or two prospects of Brandon Miller from Alabama and Jarris Walker from Houston? Yeah, I think I, so I'm still a scoot at two guy, yep. but I do think Brandon Miller has been making it like a reasonable discussion, which is a lot. Like that's a lot to say when you have a guy who's a definitive <laughs> number two of the entire draft cycle and someone can make that a conversation um really like the eyes for the corner that he's shown as the year has gone along love the way that he's improved finishing at the basket you know 66 percent on twos in conference play and a lot of that coming in the half court like just got way way better at finishing gathering the process of going up figuring out how to play in traffic getting his steps down getting the timing of the game down um, I thought Jeremy Wu, he did he did a podcast with our, our guys at the draft deck on the No Things podcast feed where he mentioned that like the games where everyone was killing Brandon Miller for his finishing earlier in the year were like a back to back to back. Like it was it was three games in three days. And it's like, yeah, you reconsider like 
the context of that. And just in hindsight, it seems wild that everyone was so concerned about his finishing. And it's like, yeah, it's probably gassed. Like that one game went four overtimes. Like it's just, I, I think we made a mountain out of a molehill. And I think I, at the time overreacted a little bit. I was never like, Oh, he's not a lottery guy. And he's, he's ancient. Like people were very worried about him being 20 back then too. Um, but yeah, he's, he's really good. He's just a nuclear, nuclear shooter with size. I like the defense more than, than certain people do. I think there's some concern about his feet and things like that. I think it's a little bit valid. I think as he gets stronger, um, he's going to be able to defend well. I certainly don't think he's a guy that's going to be exploited or picked on or anything like that. And when you provide the offensive value that he did, does, that's about all you can ask for. So um, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the on-court Brandon Miller experience as of late. Yeah, he, he's been fantastic down the stretch run of the season. I, I think that's a really fascinating point from Jeremy Wu there. It's, you know, when I would go recruit for uh, being a college coach and watch AAU tournaments from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., when you see guys in that evening slate of games, you say in the back of your head, like, all right, they're gassed. Their legs are probably gone. Let, let's just see how they push through. You're watching for intangibles as much as you are for anything else in that final game set to view that back-to-back-to-back from Miller earlier in the season in that tournament under that same lens is actually pretty fascinating. Are, yeah. are, are you high on Jairus Walker? Like, do you see him being a huge, yeah. like, top five or top six type of guy? Like, that feels a little rich for me at times, but I look mm. at the rest of the class, I'm like, I kind of get it. Where, where are yeah. you on Jairus? Uh, so I was actually, for my column, which I'm going I'm to finish up as soon as we're done, I was going to do what I call a gut reaction big board where I occasionally will do a thing where I'm just like, all right, this guy, this guy, bam, bam, bam. And I just kind of rapid fire decision, make it. So I was going to do one of those and then just kind of explain my thoughts and hindsight. So he is, he is in that like four to five range for me. Um, I think a lot of it is just the dependability, right? Like Jairus feels very, very safe in terms of his size, his strength, uh, like I saw him in person at the McDonald's all American game a year ago. And he just looked like a man. He's like he looked, he looked big for an NBA player when yeah. he was in high school, which is very, very rare. Like yeah. it is, he is, he is in outrageous physical shape. Um, and he's shockingly nimble laterally for a guy who uh, is that big. Um, I'm a little concerned about like what the shot is. The pull up shooting really scares me. Like the fact that, He's not a super bursty first step guy. Um, I really would like to see that one, two dribble pull up be something that's more consistent for him, but love him as a screener, adore him as a passer. I think that's like the big, yes. on un- kind of unearth element of his game. That he's kind of shown yes. a little bit more as the season goes along, but like going back to the high school film, it's, mm-hmm. it's more there than we're seeing this year at Houston. Um, yeah, I, 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 there are just fewer guys that I trust more than Jairus Walker. Um, yeah, the passing was huge for him at the AAU level too. Like he would get a yeah. ton of, of touches around the elbows. They'd run some horn stuff. They'd run some things where he's kind of the trailer and delay series and, and operating at the top of the key. He can handle a little bit in those situations and, and mismatch guys to the rim. He was really good in dribble handoff keepers with yes. pushing the ball yeah. out to get straight line to the rim with just one bounce or fewer. Like, there are a lot of things that I like about Jarris that he hasn't been able to show at Houston because they are so guard dominant with guys like Shed and Sasser who, who pound the ball into the ground a decent amount. I really believe that there are versatile ways to use a guy like Jarris at the next level. That said, I don't know if I ever see him being like a 15, 16, 17 point per game score. I think he's much more of a 13, 7, and 2 type of guy while playing really good defense. And there's great value to that. But at the top of a draft class, when you're stacking him up next to guys like Cam Whitmore or the Thompson twins, I think it's it's a debate that I'm still having as to how much do I value the solid role player next to the guys who just have a little bit more offensive oomph to uh, mm-hmm. I don't think any of them are really going to be bad defenders either. Thompson twins or Whitmore. So no, no, it, it, that's where it really comes down, down to the stretch too. Yeah. I think he did a way better job that like last month of the season as far as just guarding the positional spectrum. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be a fascinating debate that I'm having internally is how to how to value those, particularly Asor, Jairus Walker, and Cam Whitmore, how to value those three guys in comparison to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm in a similar boat, um, especially with just like the fact that Cam is like on the opposite side of the spectrum as far as like the decision making is always like a tad bit after you'd like it to be. 
Like it's yeah. a lot of catch, assess, and then go, which he can get away with in college because he is so much stronger than everybody. And he's going to be stronger than a lot of guys in the NBA level too. Like I think he's going to be okay. And I, I kind of bought the shot in general coming into yeah. the year. So yeah. I, I'm not too worried about him as a shooter, um, but he's just really got to speed things up. And that, that system didn't do him a ton of favors this last year. It wasn't a great environment that he was in, but um, yeah, that's like really got to turn around for him. Like that is very important for him to reach his ceiling is to just get more decisive immediately off the catch. hundred percent agree with that one. So look, we, we had kind of determined from here on our little uh, planning sheet that we would talk about risers and fallers. And I think every like article around America today, including one from yours truly kind of came out and, and detailed a lot of that stuff. So we can continue to stay on that path. But one thing that you're known for Maxwell is being the no stone unturned guy. Mm-hmm. You, you are an NBA draft sicko through and through you dive mm-hmm. in to the, to the, the film and you find those unearthed gems, try to bring them to light. So, we can talk about anybody that you want here from the NCAA tournament. Who do you want to just shine the spotlight on for better or for worse for a couple minutes? Um, okay. Can we, if we can go a little bit off the board, I think Mike miles deserves a little bit of love. Let's do it for what he's done for TCU. So I think Mike miles is like wildly misunderstood and which is like a weird way to talk about a basketball player. Yep. Um, but I like Mike a lot. I So he ended up finishing the year as a 36% three-point shooter, which for a small guard, like, is a little scary still. Like a guy who's 6'1", um, you really want to see that number like almost in the 40s, given how high that bar is right. for small guards. And he is, he's young for the class still. You have to mention that by law every time you talk about Mike Miles. Right. People don't know that. People come for us when we say Mike Miles is young for a junior, but we will go to jail if we don't mention that. Uh, so he is, he is young for the class. Uh, but Mike Miles is, I think, an understated playmaker. The, so one of the, the biggest things with him, too, is like he is a truly elite-level rim finisher. His two-point percentage came down a little bit, but pretty deep into the season before he was injured, he was finishing it like the same clip as Zach Eady at the rim in the half court. So like just with his physicality and strength, he really is able to get to his spots off the catch. He is a blur when he's decisive and goes downhill. And to that 36% from three, a lot of those are unassisted. A lot of them are coming from deep behind NBA range. Um, I think where people get scared off with Mike Miles is they look at that assist to turnover ratio and they see 2.7 to 2.6. And they think, you know what? Small guards coming out of fashion. And we've got a guy who barely has a positive assist to turnover ratio. Is that a guy that I'm comfortable drafting? And I think a key thing to consider is that TCU this season was 317th in division one and three pointers taken in 334th in three point percentage. And Mike Miles was 36.6% from three. So he was their best shooter and he cannot pass to himself. Um, So this is a dude that has a reputation for getting downhill, was getting swarmed every time he was getting there and just did not have dudes to spray it out to when he was driving to the basket. Um, And really didn't have like a threater that a center that functioned as a lob threat. Like I love Eddie Lampkin. Eddie Lampkin's a nasty passer. Like he's just a fun dude to watch, but he didn't really have that kind of a target. So you don't have shooters. You don't have a lob guy. I think you can kind, I don't want to say hand wave it because like some of the turnovers are really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the assist numbers you have to to take with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, and he, he just steps up. Like he has good games against great competition. Yes. Obviously they lose yesterday, but just another phenomenal performance did everything you could have asked for him. Um, to me, he's like a guy that I'd feel really good grabbing in the second round depending on who's there but i i like mike miles a lot i'm with it and i i love it uh, i've been a miles guy for a little about a year and a half now mm-hmm. uh, i don't know yeah, if you, you were early on him mm-hmm. i don't know if you watched a lot of the team usa the uh, u19 championships a couple of years ago when it was victor versus chet yes and some yeah. really competitive games i thought mike miles popped in that situation that when he's surrounded by more talent and he's just another six foot one guard who's kind of out there to make the right play, move the ball mm-hmm. when he needs to shoot it when he needs to can make good decisions and plays out of the pick and roll. He just, he looks so much more natural than when it's just him pounding the ball into the floor time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. I a hundred percent agree. The context is really important for a guy like him. 
I'm still very, very high on Mike Miles as a second round target, but that that margin for error for smaller guards is just it's so small. small. Yeah. And there's yeah. what twenty-five of them in the entire NBA right now who are six two or smaller. And like you fall in love with a guy like him. You fall in love with a guy like Marcus Sasser. Scoot Henderson mm-hmm. is six two coming into this draft. Like, how many guys are we gonna just mm-hmm. stick our necks out for? to take at that position. And and everything about Mike Miles wants me to let him be that one. <laughs> but I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know it how I get or it. when to pull yeah. the trigger on that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that's fair. And I think I think with him it's particularly scary too because yeah he's not the shooter that Sasser is. And like obviously Scoot does a, a lot of things better. That's why he's Scoot, but Scoot has that six nine wingspan. Yeah. And like Mike Miles is built and Mike Miles is strong, but like Scoot has a bodybuilder's frame with a six nine wingspan and he's six two so it's like scoots on like guard twos and be fine and like even with mike miles it's like man some of the guys that get played at the two these days i don't know i don't know how he's gonna handle those so yeah yeah it's uh it'll be something to watch but i'm glad that we we got to talk about miles there another guy who i know you've been really high on since the beginning of the season somebody that you and i've talked about since the summer tucker devries at drake (laughs) this was not (laughs) <laughs> this was not a great NCAA tournament for him. They no. played Miami, who's really quick on the perimeter, has some long, rangy, athletic wing defenders. So this was going to be an important showcase for DeBri- for DeVries to see how he moves and can able is able to get separation from good wing defenders in a translatable way to the NBA. He did not shoot the ball well. He had some really bad misses. I don't think he created a ton of separation for himself or any easy looks that he was going to generate for himself or others. And Drake really struggled, particularly down the stretch running that game once he kind of disappeared. Uh, I'm leaning towards he needs to go back as opposed to thinking that he can be somebody who declares for the draft. But Drake loses a lot from this roster. They do. And that makes it a pretty fascinating discussion. It does. He's not a player who profiles well in terms of his draft stock if Mm -hmm. he has to be the number one option and is asked to do a ton of different things. He's great in a motion scheme, flying off of screens, setting those ghosts and slip pick and rolls atop the key. Mm -hmm. He needs good players around him. It'll be fascinating to see what he decides. So, yeah, so here's where I'm at with Tucker. Um, He is a guy that at times I've, like, taken him in the first round of mock drafts that we've done, but he was never a guy who had a first-round grade which I think is like important to distinguish. Like he was never a guy where it's like, I feel great. I feel great giving him a four year guaranteed contract. Um, But I do, I do still really like Tucker a lot. I think it's easy to look through the season too, and still just find good games that he had against good defenders. Like he had a really good game against Bradley in the conference tournament finals where he was guarded uh, by uh, Malafi Leons, who was defensive player of the year in that conference. Uh, for Bradley, long guy, 6'9". Um, I still believe, like, I'm I'm not out on Tucker at all. And, like, if he came out, I'd, I'd still really consider drafting him. I think what changed with my trajectory against Tucker is I do think that he has a lot further to go in terms of figuring out how to play against NBA speed um, yeah. and the speed of high-level competition. And I think that no matter what, like, he was a guy that you draft and stick in the G league for a year just to get the strength and conditioning there. Um, just to get him used to a higher level of competition. Like I think that was the plan from the get go. Mm-hmm. I think where it gets scary with projecting Tucker coming out now is like, do you think he gets there in a year where before I felt a little bit better about like one year in the G league, maybe the next year you can get him some NBA reps. Now I'm a, I'm a little bit less certain of that. Um, I think this game, because it was such a highly watched game is going to leave a really bad taste. Yep in a lot of people's mouths. And I I've watched a ton of Tucker DeVries over the last two years. So like for me, it's just like, nah, man, he had a bad game. Like I'm, I'm a lot more willing to look past it than I think a lot of people are. Um, I do think he has one of the most fascinating decisions in this cycle. Um, And the one thing that I wonder, and this is something that's like zero sources, like just pure conjecture um, that I wonder is I think he should test the draft water still. I think mm-hmm. he should 100% stick his nose out there and just see if he can get hot at G League Elite Camp or something like that. Like, I think you still do it. Um, but, okay, bear with me here. Because mm-hmm. this is very easy to say from an outside perspective when it's not me leaving my dad's school. <laughs> um, but I wonder if Tucker DeVries should consider going in the transfer portal 
And one of the schools that recruited him quite a bit was a school that he grew up having ties to, which is Creighton, Creighton. Yep. which if Baylor Shireman is out, yep. does Tucker DeVries slide into the Baylor Shireman role at Creighton, which could be a great fit. Again, this is like not based on anything. This is just like me, like t- making up a story in my head that I think <laughs> is interesting. Yeah. Um, but I, that is something that I'd really like to see. I think that to me is like the most appealing thing possible where it's like you slide into a comfortable, very defined role, but you mm-hmm. play in a conference where like his physicality is going to work well for him in the big East, but you'll get to play better people all the time, get used to a faster pace of the game. And I don't think he'd be overwhelmed there one bit. Um, so that's kind of what I'd like to see. But yeah. again, that's, I, I don't know how likely that is. I don't think it's very likely to be honest, but well, it makes sense from a pro exposure uh, standpoint Certainly. there for, for mm-hmm. DeVries. Uh, you know, the G league path is always tough for guys who are three point shooting specialists because yeah. while he does need to show, some defensive improvement and that's a great athletic league to be able to do it in it, guys are out there gunning for themselves in the G league that if you're a shooting specialist, you're not going to be able to show the impacts of your gravity. You're mm-hmm. not always going to get rewarded for running to the line and being open in transition. And DeVries is such a, a smart basketball player who just makes the right play. I think a lot of times that can get lost in a system. The value of that gets lost when you don't get touches in motion offensive schemes or guys are so much more ball dominant the way that that a lot of guards are in the G League. I think it's tricky too and just that like, I don't want to like say G League defense is like bad. It's kind of, it is bad, but it's also like just a very frenetic up and down game. Um, Because of that, you get a lot of points scored. And you get a lot of guys shooting gaudy percentages that I think mm-hmm. if you're going to be in the G league and your whole thing is like, I'm a shooter. Like a lot of guys are going to come out there with, with really good shooting percentages. And like, you've got to have some other hook, I think to stand out or just be totally outrageous as a shooter. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just tricky. And I, I, I look at what happened with Trevor Keels where it's like, this is a guy that a lot of people loved a year ago gets drafted in the second round is on a two way. It now has like no organizational support, no organizational stability. Like he's just kind of on his own. Um, and think about how much more favorably he was viewed a year ago compared to Tucker DeVries. Like it's, it's a very, very rough road. If, if you're going to go into the draft without a whole lot of certainty. So I would assume he comes back. I think that's, the like yeah. far and away the most likely scenario but um you he's got to hope that drake works some serious magic in the portal because a lot of those all those yeah. guys are, are gone to play major minutes do you have access to like my draft section of the box and one sub stack here max because like i have just written a, a piece called the, the cautionary tale of trevor keels that's oh no, I haven't read it yet. I because I, 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 like, I, I haven't I haven't published it. Going, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I haven't even published. I haven't even told oh, anybody man. about it. Okay. But it's this, this exact same conversation coming up with so mm-hmm. many of these guys that are on the fence of yeah. if you are a second round pick, your margin forever is so slim. It got teams are signing guys to two way contracts right out of the gates as opposed to fully guaranteed second round picks. And what what happens from that point is once they're on a two way. They make less money. They don't have the same type of protections and infrastructure. And mm-hmm. if they end up getting cut or waived for roster flexibility needs, God forbid an injury comes up. Mm-hmm. Now they're back to making less money, like a, a fraction of what they would make yeah. on an NIL deal had they stayed in school and tried to pursue being a first round pick. Like this is something that prospects don't talk about enough. No. The way that the the salary cap structure in this two-way contract has changed the negotiations for second round picks makes it a real danger area for guys who desperately need reps in order to develop. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I think it's something we need to be way more cognizant of when talking yeah. about like who should and shouldn't declare. Yes. Um, I don't know. Like Nathan wrote a piece a little while ago about just like what you, the threshold, like the averages of guys who play 20 minutes a game or more in the NBA, like average size, average mm-hmm. field goal percentage, three point percentage, just everything. Um, and after he published it, uh, coach David Thorpe responded and said that, like he did a query and there was six rookies this year that played more than 20 minutes a game in the NBA. So just the amount of guys that walk into like a real legitimate solid rotation role is very, very small. Very. Um, and if you aren't that, then like you've got to show something kind of quickly or else teams are going to move on. And with the second round, like 
the way that these second round picks were changing hands at the deadline, I just think people know like the barrier to entry and the skill level in the modern NBA is so high Mm -hmm. that like, I think teams just know, like if I draft this guy in the second round, like he's probably not panning out in a timeline that's favorable to us and we're developing them for somebody else. So like second round pick just doesn't really have any value. Yeah. I've Um, often thought like if you were a sophomore coming out in the draft and you just say, you know what, I'm done with college basketball. I want to declare, is there value in coming and saying like, Hey, I will sign and play professionally in the NBL for a couple of years. I will go to Europe and be a mm-hmm. stash candidate for you. Please take me in the forties and give me that type yeah. of guarantee and promise. And I'll show you what I can do overseas and make, make money mm-hmm. that way. Like it, to me, that's a much more sustainable path than saying I'm going to come in and I'm going to try to compete for that two way spot right away and be on the G league. Like I'd rather have, yeah. have my rights for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And when I'm ready to come over, I've proven enough as a professional to sign like a three year deal with the first year and a half kind of guaranteed. Yeah, I think that could be really interesting. I think the thing I've seen a lot of people recommend, um, and I, I feel like I've seen this discussion with TG Jackson a lot lately, is like, mm-hmm. should he go to the Ignite? Like, should the G League Ignite be a little bit more proactive about saying like, hey, look, like you've got a really high scene. And I think someone's going to swing on GG. Uh, yes. I don't know any, like, it, like I know nothing about like GG as a guy. Like I have zero intel in the way of intel on GG as a guy. Um, but like, it just feels like somebody's going to take a bite at that. Um but like, I mean, a year ago, you look at a guy like Amani Bates and it was like, well, should the G League have been like, hey, man, come over here. Like even even now, even now. But uh, yeah, like I just wonder if like that could be a path. Like, mm-hmm. should they take guys who just say, look, I'm really not interested in school. Straight yeah. up, just not interested. Nothing wrong with that. You got potential as a basketball. Yeah. Like if you've got potential as a basketball player, like should the G League be kind of seeking you out? And that's something I'd like to see. But again, Ignite limited roster spots. Only yep. so many guys you have in the program, and you want to keep vets around him. You want to keep a Pujetter. You want to keep an Eric yes. Mika. Like you want to have these guys around. Um, so that that makes it difficult. But um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's extremely precarious, and we're seeing more and more people. Um, like last year, we saw so many underclassmen still declare, and like yeah. it just feels like we're headed down a similar path again this year. And at the same time, like the league is just going in such an opposite direction. It's like, yeah, these teams, it seems like they're still willing to draft these guys on sort of a FOMO basis. Like, I don't want to pass on this guy. Like, we've got to take, we've got to take this freshman that was ranked top 10 in RSCI. But yep. I, I just wonder how sustainable it is for teams. And it's, it's sort of changed my draft philosophy a little bit where I'm just like, which guy can be an NBA player the soonest mm-hmm. in the second round? Because otherwise, like, I'm just drafting them for somebody else. So, should I just draft guys that like, have a flaw, but maybe in the right system, they could play right away. Because otherwise, like, what's the point? Like, otherwise, I am just drafting a guy for somebody else. I, I don't know. It's a lot of stuff that needs to be ironed out in the next CBA. Obviously, mm-hmm. the, the way that the two-way contract was introduced and, and the fluidity from G League program to the NBA still has a lot of things that can be worked out. Uh, the first step is having NBA, every NBA team have a G League feeder program. 100%. Until, until that happens, there can't be uniform movement across the board that's mandated by the league and goes through the CBA. But uh, I digress there. That was that was a fun conversation to dive into. And before we get you out of here, I know one thing we said we'd end on are some predictions for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, let's just dive in right there. I'm going to get your thoughts. First one, Bama, San Diego State coming up in the next game. Who you got? I lean Bama. I mean, San Diego State just has like the age and the experience and they looked great in their second round matchup against Furman. I, I think Bama just has too much firepower and like Bama's just bigger than them too. Like you were talking about a team that like, I love Matt Bradley, phenomenal college player, but like we're playing him at the three and like, that's kind of dicey against a team that just has as much pro size as Alabama has. Yeah. Um, I think there's just too much offense uh, as a whole too. So I, I lean Bama there. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Creighton and Princeton, the fighting Mitch Hendersons. What do you think? I I have to go Creighton. I feel like the Cinderella run is is coming to an end here. Uh, but I don't feel great about it. I, I love what Mitch Henderson's doing over there. I love Caden Pierce, who went to Glenbard West High School just down the road from me. Yep. Big fan of him. Uh, but yeah, I I, th- I think the time is has come. I think Creighton is clicking at the right time. Uh, Ryan Nemhard's played some of his best ball this season. Cal Brenner has been the best defensively. I think he's looked in a while. Um, hasn't been picked on the way I thought some teams might be able to. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I really like Creighton. I think they're they're in a good spot right now. Yeah, I do, I do too. I'm gonna have to shoot my guy Mitch Henderson a text and say, don't bite <laughs> on the, don't bite on the Arthur Kaluma pump fake. Whatever you mm-hmm. do, make sure that <laughs> everybody stays down. That's uh, all he mm-hmm. does, man. And then uh, Bama Creighton, who do you have going to Final Four? I'm gonna go Bama. Yeah. I, I don't love it. Um, that's kind of a tough one to predict, but I, I think again, it just comes down to offensive firepower. I don't feel great about like kaluma and shireman on brandon miller um i think there's just a little bit more stability with the bama guards even though i don't think either of those uh back like ryan nemhart is like not a stable guy at all but uh i feel a little bit better about bama as a whole i i just think that there's more paths to victory for them their guards can get hot um they're a more athletic team they can control the tempo they can get hotter from three I, I just feel a little bit – I think they've got a little bit more firepower. Like we said at the top, lineup and system versatility. All right, Tennessee, Florida Atlantic in the weirdest region of all. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go with Tennessee here, but, like, <laughs> would you be shocked? Like, no. Because I, I, I think with Florida Atlantic, like, this is a just feisty, deep team. and Really deep. Tennessee's still missing their starting point guard. And like, it hasn't really bit them in a way that I thought it would up until this point. Um, But at some point it kind of feels like it has to, like, this is just not a team that has a a ton of offense. And is Nakamwa going to go off for 27 points every game? And if he doesn't, is it going to be Josiah Jordan James? Is it going to be Viscovi? Like it feels like there's a real shortage of guys that do that for them. Um, you know, I'll take the upset. I'll, I'll go Florida yeah. Atlantic here. I'll, I'll I'll get gutsy with it. My bracket's been terrible, so I might as well make one more bad prediction uh, so, while I'm doing this whole March Madness thing. Dusty May, the head coach at Florida Atlantic, had an all-time quote when talking about the Tennessee matchup. Said, "We're going to study Australian rugby rules and get ready yeah. for the Vols because it's it's the guards that Florida Atlantic had, the speed, the pace, the way that they shoot the three ball versus like the most physical team in the country." in Tennessee, mm-hmm. who's going to try to beat the crap out of them for a full 40 minutes. I don't know how to pick stylistically. I'd love it to be Florida Atlantic. I agree. Tennessee has not faced very good guards over the last couple of games here in the tournament. They definitely need a little bit of a wake-up call if they're going to move a little bit for, uh, farther on in terms of how their backcourt produces. But this is a, a contrast of styles right here. Michigan State, Kansas State, Izzo, Tang, the vibes are great on both sides. Who you got winning? I like Kansas State a lot. Um, I feel like a kind of a sneaky thing happened here where every year March rolls around and we talk about how much experience guard play matters. And I think Marquise Noel just got omitted from that. And I, I feel like that happened in the circles that I run in specifically because it is so much more draft focused that people look and they see this 5'8 guard that's not going to play in the NBA. And they just like, forget that there's a very experienced mm-hmm. very skilled college point guard playing on this kansas state team um i love what i've seen from them you know desi sills is the guy that can get really hot and then from a draft perspective like naquan tomlin is one of my favorite just upside gambles that you can take 610 more of a wing than a forward um but just a real ball of clay is a player a guy who has not had a lot of high quality reps uh basically just started playing four years ago, went the Juco route now is at K state, um, but really mobile. I think the shot is, is much better than the percentages indicate. Uh, one of my favorite upside swings and Keontae Johnson, just a stellar all around player. So I I'm into Kansas state here. I, I think Michigan state has played some really great ball, but they're really prone to just lay an egg here and there. And it feels like one of those has to be right around the corner. Yeah, so I've learned to never bet against Izzo in March. Like, I, I did it earlier in the rounds. I, I saw a tough matchup for Marquette and them, and I said, no, nah, I'm going with Marquette because they're too good and they're rolling right now. And Michigan State played their best defensive game of the year. Uh, I'm not picking against the Spartans again, so I'm I'm actually going with Sparty here. And then who do you have going to the Final Four from this bracket? Um, I guess I guess Kansas State, uh, okay. based on how I just <laughs> yeah. picked it. So uh, I had Kansas State in the Elite Eight in my uh, original bracket and losing to Duke, so that didn't work out too well for me. Uh, but with these teams left, I, I really like Kansas State. I'm, I'm a firm believer in what Jerome Tang has, has cooking over there, and I, I think they're a really, really great team this season. Sure. I'm going with the Spartans for the Final Four on All that right. side. Let, let's zip through the other half of the bracket here. Houston, mm-hmm. Miami, who you got? I'm going to pick Houston. I, I wouldn't be shocked if Miami wins. I mean, it's just a very loaded 
five man starting lineup across the board. If they are able to contain Houston's offense, give their guards some problems early. It, it could be really tricky. If Isaiah Wong is just like keyed in and making plays defensively and, and kind of shutting down the, the shed sasser combination, I think there's a, a really clear path for Miami, but I, I am leaning Houston. I think they're just a little bit more well-rounded and talented across that yeah. starting five. Nor Chad Omier versus their entire front court is going to be like a 12 round boxing match where mm-hmm. it's going to be like a, TKO to decide that one. Yeah. Texas Xavier, who you got there? Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Xavier. I, I mm-hmm. I've just been really skeptical of Texas this whole year. Um, it just feels like they they need a lot of weird stuff to go right offensively. The more they play high level competition, uh, we might get another big Desu game. Uh, but yeah, I just, I don't fully trust their guards on an offensive level. And that's been a bit of a deal breaker for me or Xavier. I feel pretty confident in them. I feel confident in their front court. Um, a guy like Connor is always getting after it. Mm-hmm. Nunji is very just in control of himself and savvy. Um, Sule boom can get hot mm-hmm. and, he, and he's been cold. Like I feel like he's due for one. So I, I'm going Xavier. Interesting. Uh, this is a toss up one for me. Like who do you think is the best prospect on Texas long term? Is it Dylan Mitchell? Who I mean, where Ugh. are you at? Yeah. <laughs> I, I am uh, not a Dylan Mitchell guy. Um I guess it probably is Dylan Mitchell. I, I'm just really not wild about a lot of their prospects. Um so yeah, I, I would probably lean him if you're probably just talking NBA career. Well, and and um, see that and that's the thing for me is from our perspective that we watch these games at. Texas is not a really attractive team. They don't have a lot mm-hmm. of great prospects or guys that we really like or fall in love with, but they are deep and they have a real identity. They have a lot the of guys. Yeah. They have a mm-hmm. real identity on the, the defensive end of the floor where they mm-hmm. get after people. And I'm willing to bet on them being just kind of disruptors and relying on that depth and athleticism. I'm going Texas to win that game. And then uh, I have Houston going to the final four. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm with Houston as well. Okay. And then UConn and Arkansas, that game we started with at the top, where mm-hmm. are you at here? That's a really fun one. I, I, I ultimately go UConn. I think that just that level of experience across that starting lineup is, is going to be a big deal. Uh, I think it's going to matter quite a bit. Um, again, Arkansas, it's just offensively game to game. They can really struggle. And against a defense like UConn, um, it can get tricky. And it just feels like there's more shot makers on UConn too, between Hawkins, between Calcaterra, um, even a guy like uh caravan, like if he's having mm-hmm. a good game, like yeah. Tristan Newton gets Tristan out, Newton. he gets going. Like they just have a lot more guys that, that can go off. And I think defensively is as exciting as it is. And as back and forth as it's going to be um, just the, the depth and scoring profile of UConn is a, is a little too favorable though. Yeah. I'm going with UConn, but I never feel great betting against the must bus uh, mm-hmm. Gonzaga, UCLA. Who you got? I got UCLA. I, I think that even without Jalen Clark, I think they're just a more well-rounded and talented team. I, I think their guard play is a lot more stable with Tiger Campbell at the helm. Uh, just one of the great point guards in, in college basketball. And I think that a Dembona might, I wouldn't be shocked if, if this is a game where he runs into weird foul trouble early with like some of the stuff that Timmy's going to be able to yep. bait him into. I think that's going to be huge for them is like trying to get him in foul trouble early. Um, but yeah, I think there's just more, size uh athleticism across the ucla lineup you get singleton going and you're off to the races i i've just never really been fond of gonzaga's guard play this year and i think that could could bite him here yep totally agree with you there but uh, i'm actually going with gonzaga all right just i don't know what it is about the way that they're shooting the ball and the offensive runs they can get on but i think they can score on anybody and against anybody so Mm -hmm. I, i got the zags there uh who goes to the final four uh, and th- I'm going to go UConn yeah. are, the, are the teams that yep. are left. I, I just feel the most confident and comfortable with them. I think they kind of, they had that little cooling off period. <laughs> I'll call it this season. And, and since then they've looked great. So I'm, I'm a fan. I am with you there as well. Maxwell, as always, like I enjoy being with you, talking basketball, please sure, let man. the people know where they can find you, what you have yeah. coming out here over the next couple of weeks. And the floor is yours for sure. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at bound boards. It's B A U M boards. Uh, got a lot of work coming out for no ceilings, uh, no ceilings, NBA.com is our Substack. subscribe to us over there. It's free, uh, tomorrow I've, well, t- probably today, by the time you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> I've got a feature coming out on one of my favorite sleeper prospects and no stone unturned guy, Jake Stevens from Chattanooga. One of my favorite, somebody's got to kick the tires prospects in this draft is, is what I'll call him. Uh, but like, and this is going to sound silly if you're listening to this, the highest priority exhibit 10 guy 
in this draft class for me. A guy I would just want in my building so bad just to see what I can make of him, where he can go. Um, I did a full interview with him as well. That's going to be out on our podcast feeds. So you can listen to that and then read the article. So the, the interview is more just his story, what he's working on, uh, where he sees his game. The article has some of that, but it's more of a scouting report and, and projection of what he can be at the pro level. Um, so check that out next week. I've got a feature coming out on Trey Alexander at Creighton, uh, a guy I am very fond of, uh, and like his game a lot. So keep an eye out for that as well. Always a pleasure having you here, my friend. Uh, for those who are listening, watching, make sure that you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, anywhere podcasts are found. Leave us a like on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Adam Spinello. Find me on Twitter at TheBoxingOne underscore or our substack, TheBoxingOne.substack.com. We'll keep coming at you with a lot more NBA draft-related content this week. at Cam Whitmore, Scouting Report, a new mock draft that should be up on YouTube right around the same time that this podcast is getting released and then a look forward into next weekend's NCAA tournament games. Thank you so much for tuning in and watching and we'll see you next time.